Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I direct the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to, again, thank you for coming today for our uh, very nice forum, I believe, on the constitutionality of taxpayer financing of campaigns. Before we begin, let me uh, go over a few of the ground rules of what we're going to be doing today and uh, how this will proceed. Uh, as you know, at the Cato Institute, uh, we have forums from time to time on various policy issues. We will have here today from our two um, uh, experts. Uh, I'll do a brief introduction for both of them. Uh, then we, after, I think we're probably going to have a little bit of crosstalk from them of which they consider each other's cases. And then eventually we'll go to a question and answer session in which you will have the ability to ask them directly uh, about your own concerns and interest about these topics. Uh, thereafter, about 1.30 or so, we will have lunch. I would like to also ask you, of course, to... Uh, in the context of this today, to uh, turn off your any cell phones so that we can have an interrupted discussion. And with that, let's go on to our event. In the wake of the uh, Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United, many proponents of campaign finance regulation uh, have some restrictions on the kinds of regulations they can call for. So in Indeed, they can call for more disclosure, and in, in the Disclose Act uh, that is still being considered in some measure, they can call for prohibitions on foreign nationals or government contractors. But what I have discovered and noticed in the last, say, year or so, is that among many proponents of campaign finance regulation, there, there's been uh, a recognition that things have changed and that perhaps it's time to great, give greater or different emphasis to other kinds of uh, policies. Um, some, for example, like Michael Malbin, the head of the Campaign Finance Institute, has, ca has called for uh, encouraging small donors as a, being a primary concern of the campaign finance uh, regulation uh, position. There is also, uh, it seems to be, that taxpayer financing or public financing of campaigns will be an important part of this new direction. That is, we may see a move away from Washington to some degree, from restricting campaign finance and regulating it toward uh, the other side of it that's always been there, which is subsidizing uh, ca campaigns. Now, as you know, in the United States, we have long had a presidential campaign fu uh, public financing system which offers uh, both matching funds for primaries and uh, set funds for the general election. That is in some disrepair, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, then-Senator Obama, now President Obama, refused uh, to take the funds in the last election. Uh, but it raises money through a checkoff system. A number of states have also experimented with presidential systems, including a clean elections model, and it is that that we will be concerned with today. In particular, next Tuesday, the Supreme Court will decide whether to accept and consider a case uh, brought by the by Institute of Justice, uh, the case of Arizona Free Enterprise Club's Freedom Pack, Freedom Club Pack versus Bennett, which contends that the clean elections model, the public financing model in Arizona is unconstitutional. And that shall be the focus of our discussion today, is in fact that model uh, unconstitutional. Uh, 
So, in the context of our event, we're, essentially the status quo, the world as it exists now, is the Arizona uh, program that has been uh, there for some years. And so to defend the status quo, to explain what it's all about, to, uh, to make the argument for its constitutionality is where we will begin. And uh, our speaker for that purpose will be Craig Holman. Uh, Craig is a, a familiar figure to people involved in campaign finance regulation debates. He is currently government affairs, uh, and when I say familiar fi figure, I'm not damning him with frame praise. Craig and I have uh, been around for many years. We've uh, had debates at various points, and uh, Craig, I should say, is a respected figure in, in, in these debates. He's currently government of, and a very effective uh, lobbyist, I should say. He is government affairs lobbyist for public citizen. Uh, as le legislative representative, he serves as the organization's Capitol Hill lobbyist on campaign finance and government ethics. Previously, he was senior policy ad, uh, analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. He worked closely with uh, uh, reform organizations and the Democratic Congressional Caucus in the 110th Congress in drafting and promoting the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act, uh, the new federal lobbying and ethics reform legislation, which was signed in law in, in 2007. He has worked for many years on various kinds of campaign finance regulations and the legislation embodying them. And uh, Craig has also uh, been has authored several books on, on these issues, including Buying Time 2000, which was in 2001 and played a, an important role in the uh, judicial history of BICRA, the uh, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002. Um, the Price of Justice from 1995, which is a case study in judicial campaign financing, and uh, an earlier study of democracy by initiative, a couple of earlier studies. Um, so Craig will give us some insight and an argument for the constitutionality of the Arizona case. So please uh, join me in welcoming Craig Holman to the Cato Institute. Thank you, John. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm thankful to the Cato Institute for inviting me to address this issue. You know, our organizations have a lot in common. Uh, well, okay, not really, but, <laughs> but we do share a love of knowledge and an intense interest in the outcome of public policies. And so that's what we're doing here today, arguing the public policy on the constitutionality of public financing. You know, this is an issue that really would not have been subject to debate just a few years ago. Uh, it, things have changed. And so now, uh, now, it is, now it is something that we're discussing here at the Cato Institute. The real status quo behind public financing which still exists today, by the way, is the Buckley decision. The Buckley decision is in 1976, the last time that the Supreme Court squarely addressed the issue of public financing. And it upheld public financing 
in very strong terms. The Buckley decision, by the way, was a very complex decision that struck down mandatory spending limits, upheld contribution limits, and, and very strongly upheld public financing. Uh, the public financing components of the decision was a 7-8 decision. Of, of a very uh, seven of the eight justices upheld the public financing. One justice didn't participate in the decision, so it was, uh, you know, very very strongly endorsed by the court. And the court said in Buckley, by the way, and let me quote: Congress may engage in public financing of election campaigns and may condition acceptance of public funds on an agreement by the candidate to abide by specific expenditure limits. It went on to say that public financing does not abridge, restrict, or censor speech. In fact, it facilitates and enlarges public discussion and participation in the political arena. And the way in which it does that it clearly is by providing uh, all candidates, all qualified candidates, with additional, with public financing that they may be more than they could raise under private sources to participate in the election process and to carry their messages to voters and to you. It in no way restricts the speech of any of the participants. It just facilitates it. This, the court ruled that this serves a very significant uh, state interest in curtailing corruption. The Buckley Court was very clear that in order to uphold the constitutionality of campaign finance laws, it has to be based primarily upon an anti-corruption rationale so that the campaign finance system is designed to curtail the appearance or the actuality of political corruption. And it ruled that public financing does indeed do that. Public funds displace uh, special interests, large private contributions that sometimes come with strings attached. Its primary purpose clearly is designed to curtail, uh, curtail corruption. This has been a solid precedent ever since 1976. And immediately following the decision, a number of states then followed suit and have developed public financing programs. Currently, there are 25 states that have some form of public financing. 16 of those states specifically provide public funds to candidates and candidate elections. The entire the general principle of most of these public financing programs, I'm sure you all are aware of this already, but just to make sure we're on the same page, uh, most of them are a partial public financing program in which candidates will, uh, qualified candidates will raise a certain number of contributions. Uh, say contributions up to $250, and those contributions will be matched in public funds to help facilitate and boost that candidate in terms of raising smaller contributions and not depending so much on large private contributions, which is the essence of potential corruption. Now, there's been a new hybrid of public financing systems that has emerged in more recent years that I consider far more exciting. Uh, even though I do like partial public financing, uh, the full public financing model is something that states have been experimenting with uh, very successfully all around the country. Uh, now, I want to clarify. So state programs when it comes to public financing are very different. I mean, they range from partial public financing, and even the ones that have partial public financing have different criteria set up. So it's very, you know, it, it's a very 
uh, divergent kind of system. But when we're talking about full public financing, we've got states like Maine, Arizona, Connecticut, North Carolina, New Mexico, Wisconsin, and uh, the city of Albuquerque, for instance, that have a form of full public financing. The way full public financing works <clears throat> is it tries to almost eliminates all the private financing behind campaigns altogether. Uh, candidates will demonstrate that they are viable candidates by going out and soliciting $5 contributions. And if they raise a certain threshold of $5 contributions, say, you know, $500, $5 contributions, that gets documented, and that means there are enough people that believe that this candidate is serious and ought to run for office. And once they qualify, by the way, I want to clarify, too, the reason why it's $5 contributions and not petitions is because if you're familiar with the initiative process, citizens will sign any petition if it doesn't cost them anything. You know, and, and so that you can't rely on that. You have to have a little bit of a cost to that voter, and so $5 is it. Once candidates qualify and raise sufficient qualification funds in these $5 contributions, they agree to decline further private contributions for their campaign. They receive a usually a generous grant that, of public funds that pays for their entire campaign. They agree not to exceed the spending ceilings that are set by that, uh, by that generous grant. And then frequently, uh, which is probably the most contentious issue today, many of these states will have what I call a trigger threshold, also known as a matching fund threshold. And that is if a qualified candidate spends up to their full grant and they're running against an opposing candidate who opted out of the system, and the, uh, the opposing candidate spends far in excess of that grant, then public funds will often, in many of these states, uh, additional public funds will be awarded to the participating candidate so he or she can respond to the opponent. And this is known as trigger funds. Generally, throughout the last... Oh, 30 years, uh, essentially 35 years, the lower courts uh, across the country have pretty much upheld these types of public financing programs. They have followed the Buckley precedent rather closely. So we've seen in Arizona uh, the Association of American Physicians versus Brewer, Maine, the Daggett decision, North Carolina, the Leakey decision, Kentucky, the Gable decision, um, pretty much have upheld public financing programs throughout the country. Even the full public financing programs with the trigger mechanism had been uh, generally upheld. Again, Maine, Daggett, uh, Kentucky, the Wilkinson decision um, actually uh, would accommodate that type of trigger program if it were reasonable and not a 15 to 1 level. Uh, North Carolina, the leaky decision upheld the trigger mechanism as well. There was one odd outlier in all this jurisprudence over the last 35 years, and that was in Minnesota, a decision by the Eighth Circuit called uh, Day versus Hollihan. Day versus Hollihan, the courts uh, struck down the Minnesota trigger provision. However, the same courts just slightly a little afterwards, then Minnesota amended their public financing system. The, the public financing system does not rely necessarily on this trigger provision. 
They amended their public financing system then. If they can't provide qualified candidates with additional funds afterwards to answer an opponent, then they just agreed to lift the spending ceilings for the participating candidate and let the participating candidate continue to raise private money to answer the opponent. And the same court then upheld that type of trigger, and uh, that's called the Rosenstiel decision. So we have a strong, strong juris, uh, jurisprudence tradition upholding public financing over the last 35 years, including the trigger uh, mechanism. And I want to add, you know, one court really said it very clearly, the Daggett decision said the Constitution provides no right for opponents to speak free from response, in specifically to accommodate the trigger decision. In other words, there was no chilling of the speech of the opponent happening. All that was happening was that a trigger mechanism was providing additional funds for the participating candidate to respond to the opponent's. Now, things have changed recently, and uh, that's why we're debating this issue today. Uh, what happened is, uh, well, the Supreme Court changed, uh, essentially. When George Bush left, he, uh, he, he, through the course of his term, he made two appointments to the court, the Roberts and Alito, and that alone cast a very narrow conservative majority on the Supreme Court that no one knew what was really going to happen with this 5-4 uh, divided court at this point. The 5-4 narrow majority really defines our current Supreme Court. I want to emphasize that. It, it really defines the uh, Roberts Court. However, people such as uh, Bill Maurer and you know his group have believed that this provides an opening perhaps to relitigate Buckley and to go back and revisit the whole Buckley decision. And, you know, he may be correct. I mean, he is, he is pursuing this right up to the Supreme Court. The immediate challenges following the new Roberts Court tended to be very narrow in scope, and usually, usually an as-applied challenge to the McCain-Feingold law, for instance. We had the Wisconsin Right to Life decision in 2007 that did not overturn the McConnell decision that upheld the constitutionality of, of McCain-Feingold. We even had the Davis decision, which is at the heart of these challenges right now in 2008, that still really did not overturn, uh, overturn the McConnell decision, and for that matter, even reiterated that public financing is certainly a, permiss a permissible system of, of financing politics. What finally changed the scene I think everyone is aware of is the Citizens United decision in January. Now, even though this decision in no way addressed public financing, what it did mark is that this 5-4 Roberts Court is very willing to challenge long-established precedents and to overturn, in this particular case, overturn laws that have been on the books since 1946, the Taft-Hartley Act, that banned corporate involvement in elections, and reverse major Supreme Court decisions, Austin, as well as McConnell, that was decided just three years prior to uh, the Citizens United decision. So with the, the Citizens United decision, it let everyone know there's basically, there's a whole new uh, tone
going on when it comes to jurisprudence, when it comes to campaign finance. Today's challenges uh, that are being brought uh, by my colleague and, and others uh, focus primarily on really about, well, like, about two issues. There are three issues. But the most important one is the trigger mechanism, uh, relying heavily on the Davis decision. The Davis decision, by the way, just to recap, struck down what was called the Millionaire's Amendment in the McCain-Feingold Law. The Millionaire's Amendment was if a, can, if a millionaire candidate uh, spent so much of their own money, then the contribution limits for their opposing candidates would double or triple depending on, on the level of expenditures. There was no public financing involved, but it was sort of a considered a trigger mechanism. And as a result, many people are relying on Davis to argue that the public financing trigger mechanism chills the speech of opponents in the same sense that the court decided the Millionaire's Amendment did. The results in the lower court so far are mixed when it comes to trying to apply that to the trigger mechanism. We've had several court decisions that just said, no, it doesn't apply, uh, respect Maine, Leakey in North Carolina. We've had other appellate court decisions that, that did follow the rationale of Davis and applied that to public financing, such as Green Party and the, and the Scott decision. I firmly argue that Davis does not apply to the trigger mechanism. Even in the Davis decision, the court was very clear to say that public financing is quite a different situation than what they were looking at in the Millionaire's Amendment. There was no public financing in, considered in the Davis decision. No public financing in the McCain-Feingold law. What Davis premised its decision on was within this private system of financing elections between two opponents, the rules changed only for one but not for the other. So the millionaire still was subject to the $2,400 contribution limit, while the opponents could suddenly receive contributions up to $10,000 or more, depending on, on the spending level. They're fighting in the same arena, the same situations, the same statutory program, but one candidate's favored over the other by law. That, the Supreme Court said, is unconstitutional. And, you know, there certainly is a good argument behind that, but when we're talking about public financing, this is not the same situation. Public financing has two different sets of rules that apply to the candidates. They're not in the same arena. One is a privately financed candidate going under the system of raising contributions up to the $2,400 contribution limit with no spending ceilings, no other obligations going on. The public financing candidate is usually subject to all, all kinds of different requirements. I mean, first of all, a spending ceiling. Second of all, a... Uh, Oh boy, two minutes, i got to go quickly here. Uh, 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 well, a spending ceiling, that's, that's the big thing. And as Buckley recognized, these are countervailing, countervailing systems going on here. It's not the same system. So to apply 
the Davis rationale to a public financing candidate just simply doesn't hold water. And also, I, I want to add, you know, in some of these challenges, especially by my colleague, you know, they cite a number of candidates who claim that their speech is indeed being chilled uh, because because they don't want to cross that threshold of spending if it's going to trigger additional funds for their opponents. And they have brought in a whole series of different candidates to testify to that fact. But the court, the appellate court, realized that these candidates really didn't live by that word, even though they said their decision, that the trigger would chill their decisions, they in fact didn't behave that way. They continued to raise funds, they continued to spend money, they continued to trigger the trigger funds, and there just wasn't really much decision-making going on when it came to the trigger. Just to wrap up, because I know I've gone on a little long here, uh, when it comes to public financing, even if uh, even if Bill were to prevail in the Supreme Court and strike down, say, the trigger mechanism, I don't view that as being something that's in any way fundamentally damaging to public financing. Those of us who have been writing and working on campaign finance laws for years are quite innovative, just as Bill and the opponents of public financing are innovative in finding ways to attack campaign finance laws and public financing, we can respond. And just as happened in Minnesota and what we've now proposed nationally under the Fair Elections Now Act in Congress, we have removed the trigger mechanism. And so we have removed what we view as potential constitutional problems given the Roberts Court from the public financing programs we'll come up with a way of keeping public financing working, no matter what the Roberts Court comes out with. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. <laughs> I, uh, it reminds me of something I read recently about, you know, somebody said about James Madison. You know, James Madison comes across as this great philosopher and guy who's thinking about big thoughts about politics, but he was also a legislative leader, you know. He was really good at conniving, at and I think that was true. And what Craig's just told us is both sides of this debate are really good at conniving as we <laughs> as we go forward. And that's that's a legitimate part of the story. Um, our next guest uh, speaker today will be Bill Maurer. He will be arguing against the constitutionality of uh, these public financing programs. Uh, Bill is the executive director of the Institute for Justice Washington chapter, which he joined in November 2002. Uh, IJ, as many of you will know, engages in constitutional litigation in a number of areas, including economic liberty, private property rights, educational choice, and in, in this case, uh, extensively in freedom of speech. Uh, they just were recently involved in the Speech Now litigation, um, which uh, shows real achievements, even though the Supreme Court didn't take cert on it. Um, Bill's been named a Washington super lawyer by Washington Law and Politics Magazine for 2007 through 2010. He's worked in the eminent domain area, uh, which, as he pointed out to me, also often involves uh, trying to keep corporations from in alliance with government from doing bad things uh, against individual rights under the Constitution. 
He is, Bill has been an adjunct scholar and research advisory board member at the Washington Policy Center, and he's authored chapters in legal reference works on both Washington's Public Records Act and the interplay between administrative law and the Civil Rights Act. Prior to joining IJ, uh, Bill Maurer clerked for the Washington Supreme Court Justice Richard Sanders and Justice Victoria Lederberg of the Rhode Island Supreme Court and then practiced election law here in Washington. He received his law degree in 1994 from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Please uh, welcome me and uh, please join me in welcoming Bill Maurer. Well, thank you, John, and thank you to the Cato Institute for having me here this afternoon to discuss this issue. And I'd like to start out actually by uh, echoing something that John said, which was that uh, uh, it is a real honor for me to be uh, on the same stage and, and debating Craig Holman. Craig is a, a leading uh, intellect and um, uh, mind behind a lot of uh, public financing campaign finance reform and ethics issues in the United States, and he always uh, argues his case in a uh, very intellectually honest and um, uh, pleasant uh, way, and so it is a real uh, real honor for me to be up here, and I, I appreciate especially his pledge uh, for my job security in the coming years. Um, <laughs> And I, I also thought he did a very good job of summarizing a lot of the uh, a lot of the issues and the case law on the topic. And now that I've said all these nice things, I'll start talking about why I disagree with him. Um, well, one of the things I always like to do when I start out talking about this issue is I, I, I like to first address nomenclature. Uh, and a lot of people, when we talk about this issue, we talk that this is public financing. And this is not – we're not talking about public financing here. We're talking about taxpayer financing. What we have right now is public financing. Members of the public identify politicians or political leaders that they like, and they donate to them in a voluntary basis. No one forces them to do it. It's entirely up to them. What we're talking about here is forcing people – who do not wish to contribute to political leaders or to campaigns, forcing them to do so, whether they support, oppose, or are completely indifferent to the candidates involved. And many of the proponents of this system talk that uh, discuss that this is a m means of promoting democracy. But forcing people to contribute to the campaigns of people they don't like, uh, I don't believe, uh, promotes democracy. But once we get past nomenclature, the nomenclature is what it is, but once we get past that, we have to kind of go deeper into the real reasoning uh, behind public financing of campaigns. And the entire idea behind taxpayer finance campaigns is that the public has to preemptively shower uh, candidates and politicians with taxpayer funds in order to insulate them from being corrupt. Basically, we'll give you the money first so you can't take it later, and that way we'll, we'll end up with a non-corrupt system. Um, and as with every other campaign finance system, it places the responsibility uh, to keep our elected officials honest on us and not on them. It's simply yet another way of politicians saying, stop us before we're corrupt again. Once again, they're asking us to sacrifice our rights instead of doing the right thing in the first place. And as Craig pointed out, many of the proponents of ca uh, taxpayer finance campaigns don't believe that this actually does require anybody to sacrifice any of their rights. But trigger funds, uh, matching fund systems, 
public financing in general do implicate serious constitutional rights, and the trigger fund system especially violates First Amendment rights. Trigger fund systems are specifically designed to limit the amount of speech in campaigns in order to level the playing field between taxpayer-subsidized candidates and privately financed candidates and those that support them. In other words, the system places its thumb on the scale to, to, in order to promote the taxpayer-financed candidate while burdening the speech of candidates and privately financed candidates and other uh, private independent groups who support them. How does it do with this? There's a number of ways. Uh, one of the things that is uh, remarkable about the uh, Arizona system of taxpayer finance campaigns is that it, it, they talk a lot about the, the, the idea here is we want to equalize resources. We want to we level the playing field. In Arizona, however, the subsidy to the taxpayer finance campaign goes to each taxpayer financed candidate in an election. So if you're a privately financed candidate running against three publicly financed candidates and you ex- exceed the trigger amount, say you exceed it by $10,000, you have $10,000 worth of speech. Each of your opponents gets $10,000 as well, making $30,000 to balance out uh, the speech of your $10,000. That's not equalization in my view. The other uh, thing that is remarkable about the uh, Arizona system is that it is based on gross, not net. If you spend $8,000 in order to collect that $10,000 for a net of $2,000, you have $2,000 to spend. Your opponents have $30,000 between the three of them to spend against you. Again, this is not particularly balanced. There is a slight uh, diminution uh, in the amount of the subsidy by 6% in Arizona in order to represent uh, uh, fundraising costs, but 6% simply is not a realistic amount, and it's more of, a, it's more of there to argue that, that it, it's not based on gross and is based on net when it really isn't. Finally, one of the things uh, that is particularly burdensome about the Arizona system is that the contributions, um, I'm sorry, the subsidies are based on independent expenditures as well as the political action of the privately financed candidate. Independent expenditures are are just that. They're expenditures by private groups or private individuals completely independent from a candidate's own speech. And in fact, not only are they completely independent, they're legally required to be completely independent. And many times a candidate does not want or even agree with an independent expenditure against them. Uh, Nonetheless, under Arizona's system, when there is an independent expenditure in support of a privately financed candidate or against a publicly financed candidate, and the amount of money has, the total amount of money is spent above the cap, the money goes directly to the publicly financed candidate. In other words, speech that you may not have wanted and that you may not agree with results in a bonanza of funding for your opponent. I do agree with Craig on one particular issue, which is that Arizona's system and the systems like it across the country are not like the system in Davis. They are far, far worse. Um, In Davis, when you trigger the, the, uh, the, the cap, the, the 
you still, the non-self-financing candidates still had to go out and raise the fund. They had to identify potential supporters. They had to contact them. They had to persuade them that their ideas were worth supporting and then actually get them to cut a check. In Arizona and other clean election systems, the money simply goes to the publicly financed candidate without them having to do anything. So that is the reason why the Second Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit have both recognized that Davis not only controls, but this is actually far worse than the system in Davis. That is why uh, we have argued to the United States Supreme Court that this system curbs speech, discourages participation, and limits what voters hear about politics. Now, People on the campaign finance reform side may say, well, these sacrifices may be worth it if we can get the fundamental transformational power of these systems to kick in. This may be a good idea if we can get corruption out of politics, even if there was some minimal burden on free speech. But unfortunately, these systems, they say that one of their arguments is that these systems work. They've been in, in place for a long time and they work. Well, They don't really work. They operate, but they don't really work. Every promise made by the supporters of of publicly financed campaigns and clean elections is either unproven, unprovable, or simply wrong. There's no evidence that these systems accomplish much of anything, and certainly no evidence that they produce the fundamental transformation of politics promised by their uh, proponents. In Arizona, for instance, the people who promoted the system there promised the voters that if they passed the system, they would get cleaner campaigns, a legislature in touch with the people, increased confidence in the government, and even a decline in spending. What they got was something very much different. They got a legislature that is comprised now of the hard left and the hard right, as extremists who previously had no access to uh, campaign funds are now able to access them as just as well as people who were able to generate a broad base of donor support. As for restoring confidence in government, 50% of the voters, not people, not residents, not households, 50% of the voters in Arizona have never heard of the system. Those that have heard of it don't understand how it works. This is not surprising. While while proponents of taxpayer financing uh, argue that this is absolutely essential to reclaiming our democracy. As Lawrence Lessig uh, put it, um, taxpayer finance elections are, quote, a change that rekindles a reason for America to believe in in the central institution of its democracy. Uh, That really, unquote, that really has not happened in Arizona. And the reason for that is that this system, like other campaign finance reform systems, treat a symptom corruption instead of the disease, which is a government that is too big and do, does too much. It's not the, the problem is not that the government's giving out favors to the wrong people. The problem is, is that the government's giving out favors at all. It is, and it, if the government acted within its constitutionally uh, defined roles, the need for these kinds of restrictions uh, on campaign financing would simply dissipate. In closing, I'd like to point out that especially now uh, when state and local governments and their coffers are particularly hard hit by the, uh, by the recession and people's bank accounts are empty, uh, asking taxpayers to subsidize the campaigns of politicians 
uh, for office seems like a particularly bad joke. For cash-strapped co- uh, county governments, city governments, and state governments across the uh, across the country, it seems like a particularly poor use of resources. If you have to make the decision between do I finance this particular candidate's campaign or do I buy another ambulance, do I hire another police officer, do I build another library, I think people would choose to have the public safety and the necessary governmental uh, structures rather than uh, uh, financing the campaigns of the people that have gotten them into the mess in the first place. In the end, taxpayer financing is a system that promises much, delivers little, and if anything, and comes with real and identifiable costs, both constitutionally and financially. And I look forward to hearing your questions. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. I thought uh, I would give both uh, of our speakers about a five-minute <coughs> opportunity to respond to what the other says. So we'll go first with Craig, if you, if you want the time. Yes, thanks, and I'll try to keep it down to five minutes. <laughs> um, I have a tendency to talk too long. Uh, I first want to address uh, Bill's uh, comments on the trigger mechanism, uh, it, it, because I, you know, reading Bill's brief that uh, has gone to the Supreme Court, I mean, he makes a very persuasive argument. Uh, that the trigger mechanism in public financing is really only purely designed to level the playing field. And, you know, it's, it's designed to enable candidates who participate in public financing to receive more money to match the spending of their opponents on the outside, hence level the playing field. And uh, Bill argues that that is not a constitutionally permissible basis for allowing that sort of mechanism, since the Buckley decision made it very clear uh, any sort of campaign finance law has to be based upon the anti-corruption rationale. This is based on the anti-corruption rationale. Granted, various people who support public financing and the various elements of public financing have different reasons why they want to. But underlying it all is the anti-corruption rationale. In order to make the public financing system actually function, actually work, so that candidates are willing to agree to the spending ceilings and willing to forego private fundraising, in order to get these candidates to agree to all those negatives that will address corruption, we have to have a functional system that doesn't uh, straddle the candidate so that they can't respond to their opponent, to a wealthy opponent who's spending much more. The trigger mechanism is not designed to level the playing field. The trigger mechanism is designed to make the public financing program functional so that candidates who participate are not going to be gagged at the end. Um, as one court put it uh, very clearly, if no one participates in the public financing system, it's not going to have any impact on reducing corruption. So we've got to make a system that actually is functional, and that's what the trigger mechanism is all about. Now, one other point I want to make, a more general point, you know. It is, to me, not at all clear how the Roberts Court is going to rule on this decision. Even though this 5-4 court, you know, has demonstrated a willing to buck uh, you know, 30 years of judicial precedent, 
It isn't at all clear they're going to do that in this case. When they came out with the Citizens United decision, I think the court was taken aback by the public reaction. I mean, literally, the uh, American citizens were revolted by the idea of the Citizens United decision that corporations are to be treated as people under the First Amendment. And I don't think they were prepared for the reaction that has befallen them. So the Roberts Court may think twice about trying to throw out the Buckley decision when it comes to trying to deny uh, public financing or going anywhere near that far. Furthermore, we do know that public opinion does have an impact on, on, on the Supreme Court and decisions by the court. Uh, we've seen that in the last Roberts Court during the FDR administration where the public was revolted by the Supreme Court striking down the New Deal legislation. And as a result, public pressure was so intense that that Justice Owen Roberts switched sides and started upholding all the FDR legislation. Furthermore, even if the 5-4 court does do what Bill has asked them to do, I don't see it as having very long-term precedential authority. I mean, this is a sharply divided court, 5-4. It's not like the 7 of 8 decision of Buckley. It doesn't really seem to be based upon what most Americans want. I mean, it, it, I, I don't think it would it will persevere even if the court were to rule against public financing. Bill? Thank you, Craig. Those are uh, excellent points. Um, I, I, do have to, I do have to say that I, um, I find it a little difficult to follow the, the idea that this was designed to uh, combat corruption uh, and but the way it's designed to combat corruption, uh, and, and I'm sorry, it's designed to uh, combat corruption and not laying the fit playing field. But what it, the way it combats corruption is by leveling the playing field. Uh, essentially, the the mechanism that Craig described is simply a matter of equalizing resources, which the U.S. Supreme Court has said is not only not a compelling justification for a campaign finance law, it's not even a legitimate justification for a campaign finance law. And I think that the fact that this is designed specifically uh, to uh, level the playing field and not necessarily to uh, attack any corruption concern is is illustrated by the fact that it applies to the speech of independent expenditure groups. Independent expenditure groups uh, cannot be corrupted. They cannot, uh, and they cannot, according to U.S. Supreme Court precedent, they cannot corrupt. Their speech is completely independent, as I mentioned before. Sometimes it's not even wanted or agreed with by the candidate by which, uh, to which it's uh, supporting. And so you have the situation where a uh, the U.S. Supreme Court says that uh, that you cannot burden speech in order to level the playing in order to level the playing field, and you cannot directly burden independent expenditures. The argument that the opponents uh, in this case are making is that you can indirectly burden expenditures in order to level the playing field. I, I just don't see that as a persuasive reason uh, for the court to uphold the system. With regard to sort of the the, the idea that um, the court will be hesitant to uh, 
to rule against this type of system because it uh, it does not want to interfere with public opinion and that it, it's sort of gun-shy after the Citizens United case. Uh, if there was a, a system, uh, a public financing, I'm sorry, a campaign finance reform system that is uh, unpopular with the public uh, that the court uh, would want to strike down, it, it's this one. Um, the system in Arizona was passed by an initiative. It passed by one vote. I'm sorry, not one vote, by 1%. Um, and these systems have had a difficult time getting passed uh, in the years subsequent to that. In 2006, the voters of California, not known for its rock-ribbed conservatism, uh, voted on a Fair Elections Act. And uh, the vote total was in Los Angeles, uh, 46% again, uh, 4, and 53% 4, uh, in um, in Sacramento, it was 35 for, 64 against. In Monterey, it was 48 for, and 51 against. And you may be saying, Bill, these are all, we all know that these areas of uh, California are extremely conservative. Los Angeles is just chock full of right-wingers. Um, how did it do in, in uh, among the uh, steely-eyed pragmatists uh, in Santa Barbara? Uh, it lost in Santa Barbara 41% to 58%. And overall, statewide, it lost 42% to 57%. So even in left-leaning jurisdictions, this is not a particularly popular idea. In fact, uh, just this past election season, uh, the voters of Portland, Oregon, uh, voted to get rid of their system. It was a, pretty much a 50-50 vote, but I don't know how familiar you folks are with the Rose City, but... Um, Portland makes Greenwich Village look like Utah. Um, and so these are not only unpopular uh, sort of generally, they're not even particularly popular with the progressive community. So I, I think if there was ever a case where the Supreme Court could could act without feeling like they would feel the sting of public opinion, it would be in this circumstance. Thanks very much, gentlemen. You'll have a chance to continue <coughs> as we go to the Q&A. Before we do... Um, I would like to, to mention uh, that uh, currently at the Cato Institute in our online site, cato.org, you can access a second set of uh, campaign finance discussions uh, in our online journal, Cato Unbound. Uh, Jason Kuznicki has brought together three or four people, uh, four people to discuss uh, uh, an essay by uh, the political scientist Bruce Kane about disclosure and really the, the going forward after Citizens United uh, in, in uh, general campaign finance. And so, again, at Cato.org and on Cato, on, look for the magazine for this month of November of, the, of Cato Unbound for more on campaign finance. Now, we go to your part of uh, the program today, in which you get to ask uh, questions of our speakers. Uh, if Please raise your hand, and if you have a question that you want to direct to one or the other specifically, please mention that person. Please mention also any affiliation you have. And above all, please be concise and have your intervention in the form of a qu question, please, that we can advance our discussion here. Um, the gentleman in the back, and wait, wait for the microphone too. I should mention. Would all the 
simple tax that applies to all candidates with public finance. There's, in that case, do you all really need me to repeat that? So, there all right. Okay, so all the difficulties in the system you raised are eliminated if there is a cap that applies to all candidates, that it's, that it's enforced with legal sanction, and all candidates get the exact amount of money. And there are simple ways to get around the, the part of uh, new candidates uh, qualifying for the cap and public money. Everybody is then equally treated. Meg Whitman doesn't have the possibility of buying an election even though she didn't get away with it this time. But you can see that there's no public financing in the world. I'm sorry. There is no trigger mechanism in the world that will compensate for a self-financed multi-multi-multi-millionaire. Thank you. Uh, court precedent, I mean, it's it, not, not a bad program and, and based entirely upon equality. Um, however, court precedence hasn't gone there, not going right back to the Buckley decision. And so with given the court precedence says, first of all, you cannot have mandatory spending ceilings. You can't base your public fi or campaign finance system upon just the principle of equality. Uh, this isn't something that is on the table of, of us policy wonks at this point. Uh, the court precedents striking down mandatory spending limits, I mean, goes all the way back to Buckley and and uh, and seems to be fairly well adhered to by most by most courts and constitutional scholars. So I don't see it as being an option. Well, there's a there is actually a movement among some uh, campaign finance reform. Uh, uh, proponents, uh, not, not Craig so far as I know, to actually amend the Constitution to allow Congress to restrict the ability to spend in, a, uh, in an election. Oh, and yes, I, I'm there. Oh, okay. I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I think ultimately the, the the, this kind of comes down to the argument that, you know, money doesn't equal speech. You, the, the government can't restrict speech, but they can restrict money, and money's not the same thing. It's, it's really, I think, um, that's, that's a bit of sophistry, uh, because it, it would look bad if Congress were to say, well, we're going to only allow you to print 20,000 copies of this book. And it would look bad if Congress were to say, you can only distribute this movie to 100 movie theaters. That would look really like censorship. It would, it would look and sound and feel like censorship. But if Congress says, you can print as many copies of this book as you want, you just can't spend any money on, in order to do it, um, that doesn't seem quite as bad. The idea that sort of, you know, I get to talk on the soapbox in, in, in Lafayette Square is sufficient enough for me to exercise my free speech rights. Uh, the, the simple fact of the matter is this is an enormous country. It has a lot of people in it. It takes up a lot of room. It costs a lot of money to contact people. And saying that we're going to restrict your ability to spend in order to contact those people is simply another way of saying we're going to res restrict your ability to reach those people and to communicate with them. If, if I could add one caveat to this, 
I mean, even though I, a public citizen and I am supporting a constitutional amendment to allow Congress to regulate campaign finance, um, we have a history when it comes to mandatory spending ceilings that worries me. And, you know, prior to the Buckley decision, there were several states that would set up mandatory spending ceilings. And when you leave that decision up to the legislatures or to Congress, it becomes problematic because some of, sometimes these spending ceilings are set so low that it really advantages the incumbents way over challengers. So that's, that's one thing you've got to be attuned to if you're going to advocate spending ceilings. Gentleman here. Yes, hi. Uh, my name is Eric Wang. I'm with the uh, FEC, but I'm speaking on behalf of myself. Uh, this question is for Mr. Holman. Um, you mentioned at the beginning um, that in order to qualify for the public financing program, um, candidates would have to raise a certain amount of small dollar contributions from individuals, something like 5 to $10, uh, in order to receive the, the public financing. And you distinguish that from merely gathering enough signatures uh, to, to qualify. And you seem to say that the reason behind that is so that you know, the people, individuals would have some sort of investment in the candidates. Um, so is your, is your problem really actually with the current um, individual contribution limits, with which Congress has set at $2,400 or index for inflation, $2,400 per individual? Is, is that your problem, that the contribution limit is actually too high? Because it seems like you're, you're willing to accept some level of private contributions to the candidates. Um, well, yes, thanks for the question. I mean, in, uh, yes, I am concerned that large contributions have the potential to cause corruption. And so I do want to seek a way to eliminate large private contributions. You know, it's, it's hard to come up with, a, with the magical number. I mean, is 2,400 low enough to avoid corruption? It probably is, but as you've seen, Many organizations and groups and individuals get around that by bundling contributions, by holding joint fundraising events, by doing, you know, unlimited independent expenditures as well. And so the money comes in massive amounts. Uh, a system of contribution limits hasn't been able to just keep it down to small contributions. So we need a system where we get candidates themselves to agree to accept nothing but small contributions and public financing, a contractual agreement with candidates through public funds is a way of doing it. The Fair Elections Now Act, for instance, will allow contributions of $100 or less. And, you know, that I consider, you know, perfectly reasonable. That's not going to corrupt anybody. Your, uh, your question actually raises an interesting aspect of the Arizona system, which is that in a when the system was passed, and it also it not only set a system of created a system of public financing, it also uh, changed the system of private financing by reducing the amount a person can contribute to a uh, to a uh, privately financed candidate. And I think part of the reason that we believe that this is coercive is that they set it so low that even Justice Breyer has said that Arizona's uh, campaign finance contribution levels are really, really low. 
Um, if you've got Eric, Justice Breyer saying a, a, a campaign finance reform measure is probably too much, you're probably sort of skirting with a bad idea. Um, but it, it's the, it, the, the system is designed to make it more difficult for privately financed candidates to run effective campaigns. It does that by the trigger fund, but it also does that by creating an extraordinarily low contribution limit. Uh, the lady in the first row. In the back. For public offices since 1994, from local to federal, including this year for U.S. Senate, and I have a whole range of the problem because we don't really have an election process which is fair, and so if we want to fight corruption, we have to fight from the backs uh, of the candidates' group, and what means is supporters. So even a candidate, they want to be fair and they want to be integrity, but their supporters are the corruption group. And so if you think about three branches of government, they are all corrupt, and so you have no way to grieve the unfairness, and which is actually by fraudulent criminal network operation. Or maybe they will even exile the good candidate out, just like they exiled the Haiti president. So they don't even treat them as a citizen. Now they might not even treat them as illegal immigrants. So they can have all this kind of process. So I'm thinking like, like I would support the public finance, but I would certainly oppose a small donors requirement. Because as you can see, the third party, which has a petition requirement, is very, very difficult. And then if you don't eliminate those frauding criminal network, they basically take away people's money. If you have public finance, they can really feed their money with a corporate money by a lot of voters or lobbyists. Mm -hmm. And then they have a four to one matching fund, then they get a benefit four hundred probably four hundred percent return. Okay. That's really as at the expense of taxpayers. And now they are talking about they may use the airwave to auction off, then that's not the taxpayers' money. That's a wrong concept because there's public resources. You should use them. Maybe if it was a televised candidate forum and maintenance and archive of the issues, debate, or candidate information. Okay. The, the, the problem is for all this problem, that even league of women voters, they will present to the public with a misleading and false uh, statement or candidate, or even abolish a DNN candidate false uh, uh, websites, just like congress.org. So we must eliminate false fraud in criminal network. We must really have a public finance, but eliminate any requirement of matching fund, even okay. small donors. All right. Thank you. I, I must say, uh, I believe you ran in the state of Maryland, and this is the first time I've ever heard of the, being corruption in the state of Maryland. I don't know about, about you two gentlemen, but it does seem that the question of third parties is one that she raised that is one that comes up with these uh, very often with these uh, public financing. I wonder if you gentlemen could comment on that. Uh, sure. Actually, uh, the Connecticut system, which was struck down by the Second Circuit in uh, the Green Party case, actually dealt – I'm sorry, did not was not struck down by the Second Circuit in the Green Party case uh, – dealt with third parties. And, one of the, and, I, and I think actually that kind of demonstrates one of the concerns I have with or, – or another concern I have with public financing systems is that in, in Connecticut system, it was designed to really um, sort of uh, – 
set the the fact that there's Republicans and Democrats and only Republicans and Democrats in stone because they were really the only people who could qualify for public financing. That's very similar to the presidential financing system uh, that is in effect in um, uh, which also discriminates against third parties. It was upheld in Buckley. Uh, my understanding is that the Green Party will be uh, filing a, a, a petition for certiorari in the Green Party case, uh, looking to overturn the decision in Buckley. And I think that uh, you know it, the, the sort of the, the sort of the government's ability to choose who's got the legitimate uh, message and who doesn't have a legitimate message, and the people with the legitimate message get the money, and the people without the legitimate message don't get the money. This is a very dangerous road uh, to, to travel, especially in Connecticut, which has elected independents, uh, both senator and governor. Uh, just quickly, the minor party issue is a very, very complicated and sensitive issue. The the Buckley decision did uphold having special requirements for minor parties uh, based on the concept that as long as the system does not make minor parties any weaker than they would be under a privately financed system. And therefore, it upheld the additional uh, requirements that applied to minor parties under the presidential public financing system. When it comes to drafting any kind of campaign finance legislation, I mean, these are the elements that have to be carefully considered. Uh, you know, many of the public financing systems don't uh, tread there, including the Fair Elections Now Act, uh, because we, we don't have to. I mean, uh, we provide an initial system of matching funds. Uh, depending on how many matching funds you get, you know, and because of that, we don't have to have a system that has a different qualification threshold or allocation for minor parties. It's a sensitive issue. Even the Buckley Court recognized that even though you can impose special requirements on minor parties, they cannot be unfair or unnecessary. And that's what everyone has to consider when you're drafting campaign finance legislation. Where's that threshold? Uh, gentleman here on the aisle, first of all, and we have some others. Yep. Well, we'll come back down. Go on, right there. That's, we'll start there. Mr. Holman, uh, Bill Olson. I'm an attorney in private practice. Does it bother you that the system of government funding of candidates biases the outcome of elections and that any system of government funding of candidates is biased against candidates with principles? or at least the principle that Thomas Jefferson articulated when he said to compel a man to furnish funds for the propagation of ideas in which he disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical. Does that affect your thinking at all? Uh, the objective of public financing of elections is not to promote one kind of candidate or one ideology over the other. Its objective, its ultimate object, objective, and always is and will be, is to take that potentially corrupting private special interest money out of elections. And given that's the objective that I advocate behind public financing, that doesn't bother me at all. I, I think, uh, actually, there is a, a, a way that uh, public financing does influence the outcome of elections, and that's essentially our argument in, uh, in our petition for certiorari, which is that you have to remember that elections are zero-sum games. Anything that benefits my opponent hurts me. Um, and, and Craig had mentioned earlier that uh, peop, you know, candidates don't have a, a right to, free, to speak free from response, but that's not the argument. 
what, there are, what we're arguing in the petition for certiorari is that candidates have a right not to have their speech burdened by making it a making it turn into a shower of money for their opposition, as one of the uh, candidates in elect in Arizona phrased it, uh, every time I speak, I'm feeding the alligator that's trying to eat me. Um, that creates a disincentive for speech. What it does is it helps determine an outcome, not based on ideology necessarily, but on the fact that you're having the government subsidize taxpayer finance candidates and harm uh, the uh, free speech exercise of privately financed candidates. I'm interested in the fact that there's a water metaphor going on in campaign finance. There's floodgates, there's floods of money, and now we've got alligators in the water. In, in Arizona. The, uh, <coughs> the, two, the two gentlemen here, and then the third gentleman to their right. No, to your left there. There. I wonder if both of you would comment on the possibility of the court's naivete, and especially that of Justice Alito, having an impact on future decisions. We saw in the Davis case, for example, Justice Alito citing Buckley, saying that a candidate can't possibly be corrupted by his own money, when in fact what millionaire candidates almost always do is lend money to their campaigns which usually has a balloon payment a year after the election, and they find themselves in office not at risk of losing out on a free dinner that they can't get because it costs $25 or more, but at risk of losing their homes that they've mortgaged to get elected. And so they set out to raise campaign money from folks who couldn't buy them a dinner but can buy buy their mortgage out so that they can get repaid and campaign contributions go to the campaign or laundered by the campaign or given to the candidate who uses it to pay off the mortgage to his house that he took out to finance his campaign. That sort of naivete that suggests the court has little exposure to real politics, because that's the way almost all uh, self-financers have worked. The, The single successful exception that I recall was Senator John Hines, suggests that the court doesn't have any contact with real politics. Do you think that naivete is likely to have an impact on upcoming decisions? I'd like to jump in because, yes, I mean, that that is what I was arguing a little while ago. The naivete of these justices of the Roberts Court, especially the five justices, is actually kind of breathtaking. None of those justices have ever run for public office. They've never run an election. They've never even served in a public office other other than in, in court. They haven't a clue uh, what it takes to run, uh, what is potentially corrupting. And I, I, I firmly believe that that naivete has been pointed out to them in the Citizens United decision, which is why I'm expecting them to be a little bit more cautious, you know, and maybe they, maybe they start realizing they've overstepped the boundaries. One thing about the Citizens United decision, just to show the naivete, I mean, we have Justice uh, Kennedy writing the majority opinion saying, okay, we realize a lot more corporate money is going to flow into elections that might pose a, dam- uh, a problem. But the, it, the problem really is mitigated because uh, the Congress has set up an excellent disclosure system. Uh, 
So you're going to know which corporations funding which candidates, and so therefore there isn't such a big problem. Well, obviously we have no disclosure system, and the Supreme Court doesn't even know that. This is this is some breathtaking naivete here. I I would never uh, presume to call a uh, any member of the Supreme Court. Uh, Naive, especially when I have a case in front of them. Um, but I, I think that you know the the issue that you raise is actually fairly well known. In, in my home state of Washington, uh, Maria Cantwell ran for the Senate uh, using money uh, that she had earned as a Real Networks executive. She had borrowed money against the um, against the uh, the price of the stock, uh, using the stock as collateral. Uh, she got elected. After she was elected, uh, the price of the stock went somewhere below zero um, or close to it, and she needed to have uh, start raising funds. That, that was a very well known example, and it's and it's happened before. I mean, I think you know, Justice Alito is from New Jersey. I I challenge you to find a person from New Jersey who's not familiar with uh, political corruption. The it's a it, it, it's simply the, this idea that that you know they don't know how the world works. I think is is belied by some of the decisions they make. In, in particular, the fact that they're absolutely correct that large contributions don't cause corruption. There is no academic or or uh, political science research that demonstrates that votes follow contributions. It's the opposite. Contributions follow votes, and even uh, Bert Newborn uh, recognizes that this is not necessarily the idea that simply contributing to someone uh, causes corruption uh, is simply not borne out by the evidence. And even John McCain recognizes that. It's just a hunch that John McCain has is that is, is that this is the occurrence. Well, maybe the Supreme Court justices in Citizens United and who uh, view campaign finance laws with some uh, skepticism are the ones who are uh, more grounded in reality and the folks who believe that uh, things that are not necessarily true are true are the ones who are somewhat naive. The gentleman next to the last questioner. Hi, uh, Paul Sherman. I'm also from the Institute for Justice. And uh, Craig, my question is for you. Obviously, systems like Arizona's are not ends in themselves. We want to, or people want to, enact them because they think it's going to create some difference, some measurable difference in our uh, electoral system. So I guess my question is, what is the goal, the measurable goal of these systems? And is there any evidence that any of these systems have achieved that goal? Uh, the primary goal, and I'm, I'm going to repeat this over and over again, is to end corruption. Arizona was racked with uh, scandalous affairs when it came to financing of elections prior to their clean elections program. The clean elections program has brought um, much of those uh, cases of corruption to a close. Uh, if you want to talk about policy aspects, as it, you know, there are, there's one study that showed it did generate greater competitiveness as well as increase the pool of potential candidates. There's another study that shows uh, with the $5 qualifying uh, process 
that those $5 are coming from a very wide range of average citizens across Arizona, which gets people involved that were never involved before in financing. But the primary objective isn't really these policy achievements. It's to get to corruption. The the system in Arizona has had a number of scandals associated with it, with people using the money uh, for non-political purposes. One of the reasons why I believe that the Portland system uh, went down to defeat in the last election, despite the very progressive uh, mindset of, of most Portland voters and the fact that most Portland voters really like to spend money, um, is the the fact that it was almost almost immediately after it got off the ground, it was rocked by a really serious uh, corruption scandal that resulted in criminal charges being filed, uh, a conviction, and a an order of restitution of about ninety thousand uh, dollars to the taxpayers of the city of Portland. Which uh, I would like, which as an aside, I would say, good luck collecting that. Um, so it's not that this system is pure. It just creates a, if, if people are going to if people are going to violate the rules, they're going to violate the rules. It doesn't matter what system it is; they're going to violate the rules under. Okay, we have gentlemen here, and then a couple more questions over here. Good, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Arnold King, and my question is: uh, How did the 1974 fellow? election campaign act play a role in campaign financing it is centered to the uh, mccain fire goal is it the same and where the fun political finance person that's involved in doing the thing how does the political finance person play a role in those thank you uh the the system of presidential financing came into effect in the 1974 uh, federal elections camp. Fair, what, what is it? Federal I, elections. FICA, I can't, Fair, federal elections. Well, camp. FICA, <laughs> <laughs> you get so used to acronyms in this in this job, um, you forget what they stand for. And by the way, us progressives are horrible at acronyms. What about LOGA? You know, <laughs> ICRA. Well, there's always a good opportunity to use a TLA or three-letter acronym, um, but the uh, it, it went into effect uh, by uh, in 1974. I'm sorry, it was passed in 1974. Went into effect in 1976, uh, and actually, um, when it was passed, uh, the system of voluntary contributions to the presidential campaign fund was actually quite popular. the uh, The first set of returns or income tax returns for 1976 showed 27.5 percent of the people uh, contributing to the presidential campaign uh, financing fund. Uh, however, by 2007, the last year that we have any information on, uh, that number had dropped to 8.3 percent. And so I think that that's reflective of the fact that these systems, not only the fact that they get beat at the ballot box, but that the, these systems are simply not – the idea of paying – people to run for office is not a particularly popular or attractive one for most people. Gentleman here. Um, hi, my name's Michael McLeod Ball. I'm with the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, if I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Michael. Uh, so if I, if I hear you correctly, 
the, the sort of the core of the of the uh, public financing system, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of disagreement there about the constitutionality of it. It's when we get to the the trigger mechanisms and and how to deal with with independent expenditures that really the disagreements become somewhat more serious. And so, uh, so my question is, isn't the challenge with public financing the same thing that faces us now, which is how to how to define terms in a way? That allows you to determine what's really corruptible. You know, it, how do you how do you determine the distinction between express advocacy and issue advocacy, where you can treat express advocacy as something that might have some corrupting influence, but true issue advocacy won't. And and how do you define uh, coordinated communications in a way that uh, uh, certain communications that aren't coordinated under today's law, but nudge nudge wink wink really are. Uh, are, 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 are sorted out in that fashion. Uh, don't you run into the same definitional problems that exist uh, today without, uh, you know, the kind of public financing thing that, that you're proposing? I, I, my response to that is that uh, non-matching fund systems have different uh, constitutional concerns than trigger matching funds. In my in my view, trigger matching funds are clearly unconstitutional. Uh, when you get to a proposal like the Fair Elections Now Act, um, there are provisions in it that I think really raise some serious constitutional concerns. One is a requirement that uh, broadcasters uh, make uh, space available to political candidates at a price less than everybody else basically making political speech a form of preferred speech, as well as perhaps constituting a taking of the broadcaster's uh, uh, physical property. Um, and, and there's also a restriction, I believe this is in the current version of FINA, the one that was passed out of the House Administration Committee, that does not allow people from outside the candidate's uh, jurisdiction or congressional district to contribute to them. Well, it it should be a fundamental idea of civics that uh, a congressman or woman or a senator is not a congressman or senator from is not a congressman or senator just for their constituents. They represent the entire country. They're there to do the country's business. And the idea that they should only get be able to get uh, small contributions from people in state or inside their jurisdiction or district, uh, I think, creates a, a, a serious restriction on the ability of people to associate with uh, professional, uh, with political uh, um, uh, people that they that they like, even if they don't live in the same state or the same congressional district. I told you the opponents of public financing are innovative. They, they keep coming up with new arguments that, that no one's ever addressed before. Um, but first of all, I, I wanted to directly answer your question. I mean, those are the issues that I consider the big battles right now. Uh, when it comes to public financing, it's the trigger issue that's the big battle. I don't really see public financing being ruled unconstitutional even under this Roberts Court at this point. So I'm picking the battles where I see them. Uh, however, if I do know that if the Roberts Court does throw out the trigger mechanism across the board for all public financing uh, systems, uh, opponents of public financing and campaign finance are going to come up with new innovative arguments to try whittling away further at the public financing system. 
I don't think we're really there yet, uh, but it does concern me. It's similar to uh, the Wisconsin right to life decision, for instance. Those who challenge uh, Bikra uh, challenge a very, you know, fairly small provision in Bikra or, or uh, a significant provision in Bikra, but they didn't include a challenge to disclosure. And after, I believe it was Jim Bopp won on that case with the Supreme Court, he suddenly realized, wow, if I would have also thrown in a challenge of disclosure, I might have got that too. And so uh, it's, it's sort of like, you know, building blocks that we're seeing here as people are building towards trying to relitigate, uh, relitigate Buckley. However, what the issues you have brought up are the ones that I'm focusing on now. I don't see the Supreme Court going this far to strike down public financing. Gentleman third from the aisle, second row from the back. And that will have to be our last question today. One of my concerns is with precedent. Somebody smarter than I has often said that precedent tells you what was done, not what was done well. I'm concerned that the most corrupting influence, I think, is incumbency. Most campaign finance reform protects incumbents. Why do we have the government involved in this at all? Wouldn't we be better off letting the battle of ideas play out? The more popular, effective, useful ideas will get the funding. The ones that aren't shouldn't be subsidized with my money. I mean, that is, uh, I, I would consider that a very, you know, altruistic viewpoint of how money flows in politics. I'm, I view much of the money that flows into politics as coming from a very wealthy special interests and now corporations that actually aren't promoting good policy or, or even bad policy. They're just promoting self-interest. And that is where the potential for corruption arises. That's why Congress and legislatures have to step in. I don't, I don't think most people really want to see us return back to the era of the robber barons where the money just flowed and, and you hoped that the money was just backing the good policy. It's uh, ironic that you should mention that about uh, incumbency. When the Arizona uh, system was being proposed and debated, uh, opponents said that it would simply be an incumbent protection act, uh, and the proponents said, no, we're going to be financing people in order to challenge uh, uh, incumbents and that there will be less incumbency. Um, both were wrong. Uh, the level of incumbency in Arizona is almost exactly the same as what it was prior to, um, uh, or incumbency re retention is almost exactly the same as what it was prior to the enactment of the Clean Elections Law. And the reason for that is gerrymandering. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that a court looks at when you're trying to decide whether to keep something that burdens speech uh, in effect is whether there's an alternative to achieve the same compelling governmental results. Well, you would be able to create a more competitive environment if you were able to get rid of gerrymandering. Uh, and that may be something that, that Craig and I actually agree on. Um, and, and I don't think until you get rid of the idea that there's safe Democratic and safe Republican seats, you're really going to get much change in the, in the nature of a legislature at all. 
As is so often the case here at the Cato Institute, uh, questions raised during one forum lead to another forum, and I, I can see now that we're clearly going to have to have another forum that addresses the question of, did Justice Owen Roberts change his mind in response to public opinion? <laughs> did he change his mind in response to FDR's court packing plan? Or was it, like Justice Roberts said, he had already begun to change his mind before the public opinion and before the court packing plan. That'll be the next one, and so Craig will return. For now, please join me in thanking our speakers today. And let's have lunch.